If you brought your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6. We've been in Esther for a few weeks, and uh, we've, we're going to finish up Esther next week. Uh, if you're interested in turning mourning into gladness and sorrow into joy, come back next week. That'll be, that'll be a good teaching. Uh, in between now and then, uh, lots of people are going to die. And so if you're a guy, Esther is, a, is, believe it or not, a great book for you. Um, I know Kathy just said a prayer a moment ago, but I want to I begin today by, by praying. Um, it was requested that, uh, that we pray for our military community right now. Uh, I've had lots of, of requests to pray for decisions in and around the, the Planned Parenthood stuff. I have... Uh, been asked to pray frequently and had lots of conversations with people around uh, uh, flags and government decisions. And, and we've also been in, inundated lately with lots of requests uh, for prayers for people and for their health. Right now, I think Millie is in surgery or having surgery. Uh, also, I know that our, our very own Sue is having surgery this week. And so would it be appropriate, could we just take a few moments and, uh, and just pray together? Father God, we come before you, um, we, we cry out to you and we beseech you and, because we live in a world that's, that, that's confusing. Father God, this place is um, frightening sometimes and um, frankly, I just don't understand it. Father God, we, we, we remember right now our military community, we remember um, and, and pray for those involved in a situation that happened in Chattanooga, but, but, but not just there, but, but is, is happening all around our world. Father God, where, where anger and hate and resentment is, seems to be overpowering. And Father God, we pray for, for, for our government and their decisions around, around marriage and what that is. We, we pray for those in our country, in our world, that that struggle with same-sex attraction. We pray for your wisdom on, on how to speak and how to love and, and how to respond. Father God, we pray for the, those involved with the, the Planned Parenthood movement and, and the, the deeply heated debate that, that revolves around this issue. And Father God, we, we pray for all of those young lives we pray for the, the parents that are involved and, and the doctors and nurses. And um, Father God, to me, it strikes me as such a dark place. Father God, we pray, how, how can we be the light? How can we show the light of, of your love and, and your word? How can we, we help others to, to faithfully follow you? Father God, we pray for, for our country and, and for, our, for our government that sometimes just seems in, in disorder and with, without, without wisdom. Father God, we, we feel lost sometimes. And so God, we turn to you in, in our distress and in our fear and in our worry, Father God, we turn to you. We look to you in, in all of these times, in all of these instances that we've deserted you and abandoned you through our own sins. Father God, in the midst of all of that, you've never 
deserted us. Father God, we pray for those in surgery right now, those with health issues in our church and in our family and in our community. We pray for the procedures that are, that are currently happening. We pray for Miss Millie, and we pray for those that are coming even this week. We pray for Miss Sue. Father God, it seems like now more than ever we need you. And so, God, we, we lean on uh, your promise, a promise that, that said even no matter how many times we turn or flee or run away, your promise is that you would never leave or abandon or desert us. Father God, even right now, even in this place, even when things seem dark, your promise is that you're here. You're not in some distant place, far away, unconcerned or, or disconnected, but God, that you're with us, that you, that you truly are Emmanuel, and through the power of your Spirit, even right now in this room, in this place, Filling, filling the, the gaps between us, Father God, we believe that your spirit is here at work, working out this plan of redemption, this plan of, of forgiveness, this plan of hope, this plan of salvation. It is a plan for everyone. And so, God, we pray for those here to accept, to, to move into that plan, to accept your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice. And we pray for, for our world to place itself under the authority of your son, Jesus, to recognize that the only true wisdom can come from you. Father God, we love you. And uh, like I said, we cry out to you from this place that, that we don't always understand. I ask that you would move and, and fill us with peace and wisdom and encouragement. Move us deeper into conversations with others around us that have different ideas or different beliefs. Move us into conversations with people that even have different faiths, that even right now are praying to, to a God that doesn't exist. Let us show them the truth of who you are, the way, the truth, and the life. Father God, we love you. And we offer you this prayer in your son Jesus' name. And everyone agree, who agrees says, amen. Thank you. Esther, chapter 6. I'm going to catch you up a little bit and, and kind of fly through this. If you haven't been following along, uh, the story of Esther begins with a king. His name is Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes' uh, kingdom has come and his will will be done. He, uh, he gets what he wants when he wants it until his very own queen, a, a woman named Vashti, refuses him, which he doesn't take well. He essentially banishes her, sends a decree out to the whole kingdom, and begins this uh, Persian uh, beauty pageant in search of a new queen. And who does he choose but the most unlikely of queens? In Hebrew, her name is Hadassah, which is roughly Myrtle, but that name would never do. So her name is changed to Esther, which in Persian means star. But Esther is, is a Jew, an exile, and an orphan, and has to be wondering, why me? In uh, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, another character that enters the story. His name is Haman. Haman is the number two under Xerxes. Uh, he is everything that Xerxes is. His will be done. He wants it done. He desires respect. He, he is the uh, uh, um, 
everything to the extreme. Everything is an overreaction. Everything is larger than life. And that is the demands that he placed on everyone. As second in command, second in the largest empire of the world, he expects everyone to bow down before him, to pay him obeisance, to, to obey him. And pretty much everyone does, except for one guy. And it is Esther's adoptive cousin, Mordecai, who, like David and Shadrach and Meshach and a bad Negro, all refused to bow, if you remember that story. Is that not his name? Um, like those who have gone before him, who refused to bow because of his faith, and God refuses to bow to some other foreign power or king or authority, he refuses to bow to anyone except for God alone. And so Haman just can't stand it and just burns with anger. And instead of just deciding to take Mordecai on his own out, decides to wipe out the entire Jewish population and manipulates the evil King Xerxes into giving him his, all of his power. And he writes this decree. The Pony Express takes it to the far reaches of the kingdom, the largest empire in the world up to this point. And the decree says on this date, remember, Haman rolls the dice. He rolls the Purim to determine the date. On this date, all Jews, men, women, and children will be killed, destroyed, and, and annihilated. Remember, <laughs> Haman goes to extremes. It is an over-exaggeration of what needs to happen. And all of the kingdom, all of the empire is thrown into this hopeless, confused place. As soon as Mordecai hears the, hears the decree that's gone out that all Jews everywhere will be killed, he's just a wreck, right? Rips his clothes, puts on sackcloth, and covers himself in ashes and marches through the street wailing and crying. Esther, living in her ivory palace, gets a message that Mordecai's upset but doesn't know why and tries to comfort Mordecai, and Mordecai says, no, 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 no. Don't you know what's coming? Don't you know what is about to happen? And Mordecai asks the impossible of Esther. He says, Esther, you've got to go and talk to the king. You've got to go see what you can do. You've got to, you've got to turn this thing around for us. All the Jews can't die. This, there can't be this horrible genocide. You, Esther, you've got to do something. You've got to make something happen. And Esther reminds Mordecai, hey, don't you know I can't go before him. If I appear before him without being requested, I'm going to die. He has guys with axes that are stationed on the side of his throne. If you appear before him without being called, you're probably going to lose your head. And Mordecai, in these famous, famous words we talked a little bit about last week, said, look, if you won't do it, God will find another way. But remember what he says. Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. And he offers an answer to Esther's deepest question, which is, why me? Why was I chosen? And Mordecai says, for just such a time as this. Not some other time than this, but for this moment, for this divine moment, God has placed you here. And Esther, man, she makes me so proud. Esther gets the message loud and clear. She invites all the Jews to, to fast and pray with her for three days. 
And then she says, whether he calls me or not, I'll go. I will go to see the king. And remember her famous words, if I must die, I must die. And we wrapped up last week with all of the tension of this scene. Esther hesitantly comes into the outer court just where the king can see her. And when he sees her, he holds out his golden scepter and allows her into his presence. The king, Xerxes, recognizes that, hey, this is very uncommon behavior. He knows exactly what she risked by coming to him. Like she risked her life. She risked everything. And he's immediately wise of, oh, Esther, what's, what's up? And he, and he offers, what, what could I do for you? What could I give you? What could I grant you? What's, what's your request? And everyone reading the story says, this is your moment. This is it. And Esther replies to the king, what I would really, really like is a dinner party. And everyone reading Esther would go, say what? Huh? And she has this dinner party with the king and with Haman. Not coincidentally, a dinner party for three, not for two. And after the king is, is fat and happy and had his fill, Esther again has him right where she wants him. The king asks again, okay, what is this all about? What, what is your request? What, what do you desire? What, what is your deepest desire? And Esther replies, this is my request, my deepest wish. If I have found favor, could you come to another banquet with Haman tomorrow? And again, all the air <laughs> rushes out of the balloon. But we know that Esther now has him right where she wants him. She's built suspense, not just for us as readers, as studiers of God's word, but she's built suspense for the king because he is all in. He's totally engaged. And, I, and I, I pose to you that she delays not because of some weakness in her character or some lack of courage, but because God had, had, had put the delay on because everything wasn't, all the pieces weren't set yet. And so God is, is using her to delay a little bit longer. At the rest of this chapter, chapter 5, after this first banquet, a second banquet is scheduled. But between these two banquets, some really important stuff is about to happen. I want to summarize just the end of chapter 5. The story shifts back to Haman. Haman leaves this first banquet, and, and Scripture says he's a happy man. Number two in the kingdom, invited to a banquet just with just the king and the queen, not once but now. Twice, Haman has the world at his fingertips until he walks out of the city gates. Everyone bows down to him except who? <laughs> Mordecai. This thorn in his flesh is still standing there. And even though Haman has literally everything he could ever hope for or wish or desire, he gets furious when he sees Mordecai refusing to bow again. And he says, in, in verse 13, I think maybe we have that. He says, everything that I have is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Can you get a sense of the size of this guy's ego at this point? Like, are you following? Like, I have the whole kingdom. I have the whole empire. 
And he goes so he's an egomaniac, and he throws this pity party in front of his wife. His wife's name is Zeresh, and, and, and some of his wife's friends, some of, some of his friends. And he says, I have everything, and I have nothing, because Mordecai won't bow before me. And his wife, who's tired of his belly aching, and his friends give the most obvious solution ever. They say, Haman, you're the second in command of the entire empire. Why don't you just ask the king to kill Mordecai? It's, it's the most obvious thing in the world. If he's annoying you this much, why don't you just kill him? And, and don't just kill him in any way. Why don't you just make an example of him? What are you waiting for? Why don't you place in the backyard a giant tree, a, a pillar, a spike of wood, and impale him on it? And, and make it something, you know, <laughs> you're Haman, you're, you're second in the empire, so everything has to be exaggerated and over the top. So don't make it 10 feet tall or 12 feet tall or 15 feet tall. Set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. And just ask the king to impale him on that. Now, some scripture, if you look, some of your texts may say gallows. Do, you, do any of you have that? So there's some debate about this word. Literally, the language of uh, is hang him on a tree. And so for some, that means, oh, well, hang him from a gallows, 75 feet tall. Literally hang him. But the Persian way of, uh, of killing, the Persian way of making an example of someone was to impale them on a spike. And plus, I just think it's cooler, so we're going with that. Um, I know, I, I don't know why I'm like that. I just, I just am. Thank you. I need it. So Haman sets up this pole, this giant spike, 75 feet high, in his backyard. I just want you to picture that for a second. Like, this is, this is taller than Haman's house. This is taller than the city walls. This is taller than probably even the palace, right? So wherever you're at, in this fortress of Susa, the capital of this entire empire, wherever you're at, you'll be able to see this giant sharpened pole, right? Are you following with me? And it is a sign, he sets his pole up so everyone can see what happens to someone who disrespects Haman. You see how it's set up to make an example, to make a point. So that's where our story picks up. We're going to read, uh, we're going to read chapter 6, and uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in Scripture today, and I'm going to move quickly. So I'm going to read chapter 6, and we're going to go back through it, and then uh, we'll also look at chapter 7. All right? So uh, if you want to, you can follow along on the screen. In chapter 6, it says, That night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman 
had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the 75-foot tall pole. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, who would, be, who would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man who the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you, as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace, as if he didn't know where he was. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square, shouting, This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. And while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. I told you all the pieces weren't in place yet. So let's walk back through this just briefly. Xerxes, as it happens, can't sleep. The, the king is awake in the middle of the night, and, and I don't know if he's just extremely vain or the history of his reign is so boring it would put anybody to sleep, but he, he asked to have the story of his life read to him. And as he's reading the story, they, they uncover this account, and it's, it's tucked into chapter 2 if you want to go back and look there. But in chapter 2, Mordecai hears about a, pl a plot to assassinate the king, and with Esther's help, they, say, they actually save King Xerxes. And when the king is reading this account, he asks, well, what did we ever do to honor Mordecai? What did we ever do to honor this guy? He saved my life. We didn't even do anything for him. And then I love what scripture says in, in verse 4. Go ahead and put that on the screen. At that exact moment as he's thinking who to honor. I mean, scripture makes this, this incredible jump right there. The, the king Xerxes in verse 3 says, what recognition did we give Mordecai for this? The king asked, and his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And then immediately in the next verse, verse 4, it jumps to, who's that in the outer court? Do you see that jump? Who's that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman. Now, before we get too deep in this, what time is it? The king can't sleep, right? So I, I'm just guessing the sun isn't even up yet, right? This is early. 
It's still dark outside. But who's there already? You get a feeling that Haman is pretty anxious, right? His wife and friends have come up with this great idea. They've already set the pole in the backyard. Haman can't be waiting in line all day. He's so excited. He is there before the king's doors even open, basically, right? You see how excited he is to jump into this plan and have Mordecai killed. He's first in line to see the king. And now I want to talk about a translation difference. In the New Living Translation, which is what we've been reading out of, uh, it says, uh, who is in the outer court? The king inquired. And the New Living Translation says, as it happened. Now, in just about every other text I looked in, NIV, NRSV, NASB, uh, uh, that, that even that old one I know none of you use, that KJV, um, the new KJV, either, either of those, um, that phrase, as it happened, is all translated the same, and it is the word now, okay? Who is in the outer court, the king replied. Now, Haman had just arrived, but the New Living Translation translates it as it happened. Um, now, I know that's different, and, and, and technically the word could be translated now, but, but in my opinion, as it happened is the perfect sentiment. Now doesn't just quite doesn't doesn't quite do justice to to the verse and what happens at, at that moment. Now just means now I just showed up. But but as it happened means at just the right moment. At just the right moment when Xerxes is thinking about honoring Mordecai at just the right moment at just the right time in perfect timing. Haman and Xerxes are brought together. As it happened, tells us that this was no chance. This was no accident or fate. But as it happened, hints at what we already see happening in the story. As it happens, God brings Haman to the king's door at that exact moment. And Xerxes is so anxious to honor Mordecai, he just jumps straight in. He doesn't even stop to ask, Haman, what are you doing here? Haman, why are you here so early? Haman, what are you doing in my bedroom? You know, like, he doesn't stop to ask any of those questions. He just jumps straight into his line of thinking and, and, and says, what should I do to, to honor someone that, that, that has the, the king's approval? What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman... Big ego, remember? Instantly thinks he's talking about him. Uh, for some reason, it makes me think of some of the conversations I've had with my wife. You know what I'm saying? It's just lost in translation, you know? Like, they're, they're having this conversation, but neither one of them know what they're talking about, right? Right? And Haman completely misinterprets the, the king's question. It says, hmm, what would, the king, what would I want the, the king to do to honor someone he truly pleases? What If the king was going to honor me, what would I really, really want? Well, what I would want the most is a parade, right? 
That's what he asked for. I want you to dress me in your royal robes. Remember, Haman wants to be Xerxes with everything. He's number two, but that's not good enough. He wants to be number one. So I want you to dress me like I am the king. I want you to put me on the horse, that put a crown on the horse's head too. I don't care. I want everyone to, and, and march me through the whole city with one of the high officials pronouncing, look, this is what the king does to one he wants to honor. And irony of irony, <laughs> Xerxes med says, man, that's an awesome plan. Go do it. For your mortal enemy, Mordecai. <laughs> and, and Haman's jaw hits the floor. You know. And to his, uh, I don't know, to his credit, uh, Haman does everything the king wishes for Mordecai. You know, I mean, can you just see this guy marching? <laughs> marching Mordecai on the horse through the streets. I mean, he's kicking stones. and This is what the king does to one he wants to honor. You know, like, I mean... Oh, man. And he says, after this is done, Mordecai just kind of goes, Mordecai's like, wow, <laughs> that was unexpected, you know. And Haman turns and goes home. He takes this walk of shame, this dejected, humiliated walk. And um, the, the real irony of this, this whole story is Mordecai's going to die anyway, right? Haman has already sent out a decree with the king's signet ring saying that all Jews are going to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. It's going to happen on this and this day. Mordecai was already going to die. Haman just couldn't wait, right? If he would have just waited. When Haman gets home, he cries to his wife, Zeresh, and friends again. And they get to be this, this great uh, prophetic kind of foreshadowing voice for, for Haman. And, and they say in verse 13, I think maybe I have it up there, when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his, wife, uh, his wise advisors and his wife say, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. Like, what did they see that he didn't? As it happened, they are wise to something else happening here. They know that something else is happening. There is a supernatural force at work in this. And i.e., they call him the, the Jew. He's of Jewish birth. This Jewish God is standing in your way. And in verse 14, it says, while they were still talking, the dinner bell rings. It's time for banquet number two. And if you remember the famous poem, uh, for whom the bell tolls, that's exactly what is happening to Haman because the bell just tolled for him. You want to know what happens? Chapter seven, let's read it together. It's not very long. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, banquet number two. On, and on this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. And Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask, here we go, here we go, I ask that my life and the lives of my people would be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. 
And if we had been merely sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disrupting the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. And the king exclaimed, Will you even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impel Mordecai, the man who saved the king for, from assassination. Then impale him on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. I love that chapter. <laughs> Banquet number two. Haman is back in the good graces with the king and with Esther. They're fat and happy again. This time the king says, what's your request? Esther, come on, just, just spit it out. I know something's bugging you. What is it? And Esther says, if I found favor with the king, she finally, it, it comes out. If, if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people would be spared. For my people and I have been sold. Remember, Haman offered 10,000 large sacks of silver to kind of push his agenda through. Remember that? They've been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. The irony of the situation is, is that Haman's probably as furious as the king is at this point, right? Haman is, who would threaten the king? Uh, and, and, and who would threaten the king's queen? But something had to stick in Haman's head. Like, like Haman's instinct would be to protect the king and the queen. But when Esther uses that language of kill, destroy, slaughter, annihilate, she uses the exact same language Haman uses in the decree to kill all of the Jews. And so even though Haman is probably standing up to defend Esther, those words sound strangely familiar. See how this works? And when the king says, who would do such a thing? Who would be so presumptuous to touch you? Who would dare? Who would dare touch you? More foreshadowing, right? See how it works? Because you don't touch the queen ever, 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 ever. Because a threat to the queen is a threat to the king. And right as Haman is trying to figure out, where have I heard that? Kill, annihilate, destroy Esther stands up and raises her finger and points at Haman and says, he is the wicked enemy of, our, of us, of the Jews, the enemy of the Jews. And at that mo moment, Haman chokes on his turkey leg. <laughs> he presumably doesn't know that uh, Esther has any ties to Mordecai, much less that he is 
kind of his adopted cousin, daughter. Xerxes, in classic Xerxes style, storms out, uh, out of the, the, the banquet hall into the garden, just furious. He's in a rage, right? His number two has turned out to be this turncoat that, that had, had wanted to kill his own wife. And now another great irony of this story. So the whole reason we're in this place at all is because Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, right? Because Haman deserves respects. He deserves everyone should bow down to Haman. And now who does Haman throw himself at? Um, whose feet does Haman throw himself at? Esther's Jew, exile, adopted woman, right? It's an incredible to me that he sees that she is the one that holds the key to his freedom. And I don't know if he's just so exuberant and, and trying to trying to, to, to gain his freedom, but you imagine Esther is kind of lounging on this couch and, and Haman throws himself, and again, we have a, what's happening is completely misinterpreted because as it happened, right, at that exact moment, who walks back in? Xerxes, and says, I just said you don't touch her. And here you are, you're trying to even assault her. And I love this, I love the imagery. It says, you know, right at this moment, some of the, the king's officials, they, 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 his attendants covered Haman's face. This is, remember the, the, the old movies where the executioner puts the hood over the person who is about to be beheaded? They cover his face and they signal his doom. And essentially they say, you, you aren't going to want to see what happens next. But how shall this execution take place? You know, so they ask, you know, we got we to gotta kill Haman. How, how are we going to do it? And imagine, like, I, I know it's kind of an obvious thing, but they just kind of start looking around like, hmm, how are we going to kill Haman? And as they're looking around, what are they able to see? What stands higher than, than the palace? What stands higher than the city walls? A giant 75-foot tall, sharpened pole. And as uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet famously quoted, he shall be hoisted by his own petard, which essentially just means the device designed to kill and injure others will be turned on him who built it. Frederick uh, Buckner once said, especially as it relates to this phrase, as it happened. He once said, coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous. As it happens. If you look through this story uh, uh, from, from the first page, there's, there's instance after instance after instance of events that, that seem uh, incompatible. They seem totally random and, and, and potentially disconnected. But as the story comes to a conclusion, as it comes to a head, and as you begin to look back, you see that all of these moments, they're, there's, they're not random at all, but there's, there's some force, there is some thing, there is some God steering all of these events. 
As it happens, Mordecai saves the king's life. As it happens, Mordecai adopts this, his, his cousin, this, this girl named Hadassah. As it happens, King Xerxes gets rid of his Vashti. But as it happens, he picks Esther to be his new queen. As it happens, Haman wants everyone to bow down before him and, and, and walks into request. As it happens, he walks into request Mordecai's death at the exact moment the king is looking to honor Mordecai. As it happens, Esther, an orphan, exiled woman, is chosen to be queen of the largest empire in the world. As it happens, Esther is the only one who has a voice to the king's ear. Esther is the only one. As it happens, she's the only one who could speak up for the Jews. As it happens, she's placed in this divine moment, positioned perfectly to bring about the salvation of the Jews and to take out their enemies. And although his name is never mentioned, the story of Esther exudes as it happens God. Do you see that? And as we dig into this story that we love and is so engaging and exciting and interesting and filled with suspense and intrigue and, and twist and turns, we aren't supposed to be so focused on this story that we forget to look at our own stories. As it happened. As it happened, I, I, I met Amy my future spouse. As, as it happened, we ended up at a, this little church in Franklin. As it happened, you. If you look back at your life, there are going to be, you will see twist after turn after twist that seemed random at that moment, that seemed just chance or circumstance or fate or luck or whatever. But when you look back through the lens of as it happened, God, then you begin to see how God has been positioning you and moving you towards his plan, towards his purpose from the beginning. Do you believe me? As it happens, God. The book of Romans puts it this way. I know you know this verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, but maybe you've never heard it applied to the story of Esther. When we were utterly help helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. As it happens, God sent his one and only son to die for you. And as it happens, you are here in Franklin. And as it happens, you are here in this church. And as it happens, you are in your workplace. And as it happens, you have these friendships. And as it happens, you have these relationships. And as it happens, this person is going to serve you lunch today. And as it happens, you're going to be in this place. And all of these moments are designed by God to draw us to him, to achieve God's will of redemption and salvation. Are you with me? As 
it happens in a world that's confusing and filled with chaos, God is still at work bringing about his plan of redemption. Are you with me? We are not alone. And God has not abandoned you. In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. It's, it's perfect timing for you to take the, the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, poured out for you, and, and, and the bread, which represents his body that was broken for you. Not when, not when you were perfect, not when you had your act all together, not, not when you were doing everything right. That's not when God sent his son to, to die for you. He didn't look down from heaven and say, whoo, man, that person, they've got it all together. It's, I need to rescue them. I'll send my son to rescue them. That's not what happened. But when you're at your worst, you're most sinful. When you had turned and deserted God because of your sin, turned your back on him, as it happens, it was at that moment God sent his son to die for you. And so in just a few moments, I'll dismiss you and you can stand up and go to the communion tables. I invite you to, to take communion together, to share it together. Um, maybe a, 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 an appropriate exercise for your, as you take the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you, given so that you would have the forgiveness of sins. Uh, as you take these elements, maybe share with the person next to you one of your as it happens moments. If you look back at your story, it's easy to look back at Esther's story and see all these events where God was steering things and God was moving and God was acting. Maybe as you take that communion today, share with the person next to you, share with your family or neighbors or, or just someone sitting next to you, what was your as it happened moment? When did God use you, plug you in? When were you used by God? When have you seen God's timing and his will and his hand at work in your life? And that way, we could celebrate the story of Esther today. Let me say a prayer for us. Father God, I thank you so much for, for your words. I thank you for, for Esther and her life and for what it means for all of us even today. The way that uh, the, these events fit together, Father God, sometimes it's, it's so easy for us to get lost in our world and feel feel like you're somewhere else or somehow disconnected, but God, this story reminds us that you're here and you're active and you're engaged and that you love us and you care for us. And, and the evidence of that more than any other is that while we were still sinners, you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And Father God, it, as it happens, we are here now in this moment. And right now, God, I, I, I place on these, these sitting in this room, maybe as it happens, now is the moment that they've been waiting for. As it happens, now is the moment where your spirit is compelling them and pushing them to give their life to Christ. As it happens, God, maybe you're, right now you're challenging them and calling them to respond to you. Maybe confess a sin or, or commit to, to you through, the, through baptism. Father God, that's why we're here. That's why we, we communion with your son every week, not to, to think about something that happened a long time ago, but to think about all of the different happenings in our life that you have been involved in and are active in even now, even here in this place. So Father God, if, if you're placing on people's heart to respond, I pray that they would do that. 
I, I pray that like Esther, they would step into this divine moment of trusting you to committing all of themselves to you. And Father God, as we take this communion, that all of us would remember your son, Jesus Christ, who as it happens, endured a terrible, horrible, painful death so that we would have life. Father God, we love you. It's in your son Jesus' name. Everyone together says, Amen. I dismiss you.